This talk was given by Michelle Sege Spark at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sege is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, friends of the Dharma. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sege. I'm a, a senior uh, lay disciple of the Mountains and Rivers Order, and uh, I'm giving the talk today, Thursday, in case you forgot what day it was. Sometimes that happens. Thursday, a session at the end of Ango. It's kind of a crunch time. Things have whittled down a bit, if you've been here since Monday, or... They've been coming up again and again, so it's, it's kind of a hot time. Um, used to be the day I wanted to run out of here. <laughs> anyway, um, and we're getting ready, all of us together, um, for the Shusohosen ceremony with Seryu on Sunday. It's a time of celebration and also a time of our practice all together. And um, when I thought about what I was going to talk about today, uh, well, first of all, uh, I'm entirely grateful to assistive technology, which includes all all the servers (laughs) and everybody who comes to session. But it also includes this. um, I think this is a first iPad. we actually brought a device into the Zenda. Oh, no. Um, so, and I'm trying it out for today. So bear with me. <laughs> um, and I think about Sashin as a very sturdy box-like container. But it's also like a childhood sandbox where the sand inside is very malleable and changeable, and it's a substance that, with a delicate touch of a palm or a foot, can alter the whole world. And with this in mind, we come to session and we see the world afresh. Um, when When I thought about what I wanted to talk about today, my my intention is to make an offering. Uh, and for, for, to receive an offering. So to give and receive, that's my intention. And to come out of silence and speak is daunting. Uh, let's use it that way. And so I had this little picture that I would come up today and I would just look around and say, I'm glad to be here, thank you very much, and go back to my seat. And that actually comes from an old story of a person in a temple, I guess, in China. The whole sangha had gathered in the Buddha hall and was anticipating a talk, a Dharma talk, food of the Dharma. And the person got up to the podium and wrapped it with, like that, I guess, and then got down from the podium, I think it was elevated, and went back to her seat. 
And I wondered what would it be like to be in that audience at that time? Was something offered? Was it Dharma food or was it taken away? So we look towards the talk like it's cake and tea and that it's something will shift us. And we hope that in listening to the talk that it will take take us away maybe from something we've been dwelling on uh, or give us insight to, to shift us from where we have fallen into, whether it's a shallow or deep place. So we want re- reassurance that someone else is going to show us something. We look towards the teacher or seniors or people we admire or that they know something a gesture, it could be a picture, it's a projection of ours that we keep in our mind. Maybe it's uh, an aspiration, something that we congeal more ideas on. I want to be like that. And especially we look that way when we feel like we're falling into a place of confusion, or I call it the pit, (laughs) the netherworlds, the netherworlds are the hellish regions, and that can happen in Sashin. But maybe it's good to burn up till there's nothing left. Maybe then the dream will dissipate, and we can wake up refreshed. And the less, less we have that's obscuring our original true nature. I encounter this kind of process when uh, I, were, I write with two inmates in facilities who want to practice Buddhism, um, and you can see them looking to the Dharma to shift them, um, and they sit down on the pillow, and it's like the whole world is new, um, because what happens when they get into prison? Well, their whole world has stopped in the way that they knew before, and it can be very restrictive and punitive, often inhumane and scary. They're separated from people that they love, and they had to give up everything that they were doing in life, whether it was destructive or not, whether it was harmful or not. And so their dreams and desires and hopes are dashed. And I think that All of us have experienced that at times. And practice on the pillow can help us sort that out in some way, just to face who they are, who they've been, what they've done. Um, And thoughts of the past naturally rise up. There might be remorse or defensiveness, resistance, all manner of endless desire and aversion. And to some extent, uh, that happens with us too. I mean, it can happen more or less with us. Depends on what our tolerance for that kind of thing is. Well, I like to think of zazen as sort of like a compost bin where you take the lid off and the bugs fly up. And you go, oh no, there's a world in there. What is it? And it's just bits of broken down debris you can't even recognize because you really haven't been looking at it. You haven't 
open the lid to look. And things are haphazard. There's no consideration about where they've been placed or how they've been decomposing. And actually, it needs air, light of day, heat, water, all the elements are present, but it needs help with that. And that is our mind in Zazen, this mind that needs light, air, water, and seeing the messy life as it is, this compost. And then when the inmates get off the pillow, there's this shock of noticing their minds in action. Uh, the judgment, the reactions, monkey mind in action, and the suffering that they both see in other people um, and in themselves. So Shugen Roshi talked a little bit yesterday about the right view, um, the first of the Eightfold Path, and that is to see the teachings in our own experience, um, the path of that's what gets us on the path, to see the teachings. And what are they? The beginning of those teachings are, of course, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Marks of Existence, which um, are part of dukkha, all conditioned experiences, impermanence. Things don't last. Unsatisfactoriness or suffering and non-self of identity. And I know that it's, this is something I've been hearing since I came here, but it's always something to review because it just sort of, like that sandbox container, helps me orient myself, so this view. And one of the things that he said that when I first heard him say it, I, I really looked at, which was that there's a recognition, there should be a recognition that our struggles are not unique, that thousands and thousands of people have come before. And when he first said that, I thought, what, is he kidding? How could they, you know, I I couldn't see that. I couldn't recognize that. Because of course I was unique. I was unique, right? That was part of the suffering. I didn't know that. But, um, and and to have that view actually widens our capacity to not... um, feel so bad in a way because it's something that's part of the process of being human. So, you know, yeah, I'm a judgmental person. Well, so is A, a through Z. The, 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 everybody in the Zendo is probably a judgmental person. <laughs> well, to, to some extent. And it really, um, when I first really heard that, I was sort of like, wow, why couldn't I have thought of that? It's just so obvious. But if you're self-centered, you don't think of it. You, you don't think of it. Um, and these, these right view, these four, four noble truths, the three marks of existence, are the first turning of the Dharma wheel. I always wondered what these wheels were. You know, where were they? What were they? And this was the talk on Vulture Peak the first turning of the wheel, the talk on Vulture Peak. And it's about apparent reality, the way things appear to us, what seems to be happening, and that we should notice these things that are happening. 
So the consequences of these things that are appearing to exist, I'm using the word appearing for a reason, our karma, and we try to understand that in our behavior when we start to observe our behavior and other people's behavior. And therefore, we come up with the precepts or the vinaya, the conduct, modes of conduct, conduct, so that we don't have to endlessly repeat samsara. That's a wheel that we turn on. So the wheel is a cycle. It's a visual. There's no beginning, no end. It's not like a box, really, because where would you start? There's no corner. It just keeps spinning and spinning. The second of the Eightfold Path is right intention or right thought. So those two actually go together, right view, right intention. And it's interesting, you know, I never paid any attention to any of this stuff because making lists of things with numbers, uh, I was not my thing, okay? I'm just, but it's very helpful sometimes, so... I'm more of the wheel kind of person where things just go around and go around. (laughs) Okay. So in right intention, for instance, uh, the right intention of me giving this talk is is to make an offering. So that's the right intention. It doesn't mean first thought is right thought. And it doesn't mean correct as in right and wrong. It means to be actually in harmony with our thoughts, to know what they are and to harmonize our thoughts with appearing reality in body, speech, and mind. So we meet what appears in our mind with our radiant Buddha nature, our radiant awareness. And this is something we've always known and we are also trying to see clearly, see more clearly with less obstructions, making that effort, and that right effort comes later, so I won't talk about that today. So things appear, they disappear. Um, Do they exist or not, really? If they appear and disappear, do they exist? I mean, are they things? Well, you know, we can talk philosophically about that, but I was struck by what Hojin Sensei said in in her last Dharma talk about the arhats, who heard this second turning of the wheel, which is more about impermanence, emptiness, and how 5,000, 50,000, I don't know with numbers, arahats got up and left. Like, I'm not going to deal with this. How can you say things don't exist? What are you, crazy? Look, I hurt myself, you know, tripping on the step. There's a step, there's my knee, boom. I, you know. So there's this thing... um, seems to be difficult to get. Now, conceptually, we have ways of doing that, but in actual reality, we're often very primitively functioning like things exist. They really exist. You can't tell me they don't. I tried telling that to a three-year-old. He's just not going to be happy if you take his ball away. He knows it exists. But does it exist if you can't see it? I'm not going there. That's, that's not, <laughs> but in any case, this is what you would call a taste of genuine reality. The emptiness that things don't last. And 
this is where the sand comes in, that the sand can be muted, and it's influenced by many co-rising things, like a foot or a hand or a, somebody seeing something else or adding a leaf or a stick. And it isn't always understood in language, and that was my right intention of getting up here and then going back to my seat. The language in me... I, I was attracted to Zen primarily because I heard it's beyond words and letters. That was my, that was my hook in. Okay, so uh, anyway, I'll do my best with that. So right intention is also the study of dispassion, of, of non-attachment, of not fueling with intense intensity the emotions that give rise, the stories that give rise. And to see all those things, how they get created. And then, of course, hopefully, bodhicitta comes up. Because we, we understand our own suffering. And then we can see that a little more in others. And we can have compassion. So the thought of mind, the turning toward, is our own very own dharma wheel. That's Dogen said. When the wheel turns, it turns in all directions. He's talking about you and me and the true person that we are. When we apply this mind of right view, we're making a vow to unify, to see the two as one. They seem to be so different. This exists. This exists. No, it's empty. It's not, it's not really. It came into being because X, Y, and Z, and you can follow that. They seem to be so disparate and separate. They seem to be one and or the, the other, but not, not so can they happen at the same time. So they go together. And we use practices to follow through with our right intention, the three treasures of practices of zazen, contemplation. It's good to examine. We often talk about don't think, don't think, but you should. You should really think closely, as Gokhan said, to examine closely. Study liturgy face-to-face. So we want to see also our right intention before the thought, before the thinking. What is your right intention in the pause between your breath? before any action, before any speech, to make that real with the two of unifying this insight into what it is with your actions. And we get a little taste of that in Zazen because we're <coughs> slowing down enough to, to see. In the postures we take, are we pushing ourselves with too much effort going forward? Are we resisting pulling back? And sometimes body tension will tell you, scream loudly to you, no, no, you're not sitting the way I, the body needs to. The mind has an idea about posture and the body has another. But the two should, you know, they need to work together. And our minds so override sometimes our postures that that's when pain comes up. Pain is a is the body telling you something? So before becoming anything 
is right intention. What, what is that like before becoming anything? Anything at all. Before being a person. Now, if you study the, the formal old teachings of the Pali Canon, there's a more intellectual understanding a bit, and I would just review that, um, of right intention. And this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And you can actively, consciously work on that. So they would involve renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. That is very similar to the Mahayana three first grave precepts of not creating evil, practicing good, and actualizing good for others. And he also has, in case you don't know what those things are, he has prescriptives for what, what's wrong intention. Don't do this. <laughs> very, very cognitive, very like rule-bound. You know, it's helpful. Um, so the wrong intentions would be desire, ill will, and causing harm. And I was wondering, this is so kind of concrete laying out how this compares to um, what Dogen says about refrain from unwholesome action and do wholesome action. And they are the teachings of the Buddha way. So that is manifesting Buddha. If you can do that, you're manifesting Buddha, whether you realize it or not. Ambika Bodhi offered a, a quote from the Buddha, which I thought I'd share. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up of our thoughts. If a man speaks or acts with an evil thought, pain follows him as the wheel follows the foot of the ox that draws the carriage. If a man speaks or acts with a pure thought, happiness follows him like a shadow that never leaves him. And then Bhikkhu Bodhi takes this, in case we haven't gotten it, and makes the distinctions about the thoughts, about this process. And um, what he says is, before Buddha's enlightenment, while striving for deliverance, meditating in the forest, hey, Sashen, he saw his thoughts could be distributed in two different classes. In one, he put thoughts of desire, ill will, and harmfulness. In the other thought, Thoughts of renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. Whenever he noticed thoughts of the first kind arised in him, he understood that those thoughts led to harm for oneself and others, obstruct wisdom, and lead away from nirvana. So it seems very clear. It is helpful in clearing confusion. If we can observe and discriminate our thoughts, that would be wonderful. But it gets so complicated so fast. It's good to know this basic so that we can go from there. And we are in charge of our thoughts to a degree. But as the inmates so easily discover when they get off the pillow, right away, they've they've turned inward a bit, they face themselves, they start observing, and right away they get off the pillow and all hell breaks loose, like, oh my God, this monkey mind, and it's going, and I have no control, and so forth. And this is a process that goes back and forth and back and forth until there's, um, until it's integrated, really, in everything, 
so that zazen fills your day, your mind. There's no difference between session and going home and speaking to your partner who does not practice like my husband. There's no difference. Where's the difference? So we're looking to develop dispassionate observation, and that sounds really good, but uh, I spent years trying to look directly at things. I would go in to see Daida Roshi, and he would say, no, no, look, look at the koan. Like, because I was bringing in compost from everywhere, you know? Just so learning to look closely and really see what's being presented to you is, is super important. So renunciation runs counter to the world of desire. What are we to do? Well, as I said, looking closely, recognition of that nature and objects and results of desire, notice how these things intersect. Notice how they come, appear, and they disappear. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, when we scrutinize closely, we find that it's constantly shadowed by dukkha. But, he said, there's benefits of renunciation. And he's a Theravadan monk, so maybe he knows what he's talking about. Renunciation gives fearlessness and joy. It purifies conduct, aids concentration, and nourishes the seed of wisdom. And in the Mahayana, there's the recognition of impermanent nature of desire, permanent nature of all things. And that is the second turning of the wheel, as I mentioned before. That I am is a question, ultimately, of maybe there's not a me here. I am not the scenario I'm dreaming up here. I can wake up from this dream. And this is what we do in session. Not, not that easy, but keep at it. <clears throat> so what is the inner resistance? I am these things. Of course I am. We believe it, and we reify it, and we get others to reify it. And we believe we're finite beings, the skin bag, as they say. Bhikkhu Bodhi goes on and says, for such a long time the mind has been accustomed to gaining, grasping, and holding, that it seems impossible to break these habits by an act of will. One might agree for the need for renunciation, and one might want to leave attachment behind, but when the call is for actually sounded, the mind recoils and continues to move in the grip of its desire. Ain't it so? Um, he, he goes on about goodwill, and that is the metta. Uh, and in, we chant in the Karyana, metta sutra, wishing and gladness and a safety, may all beings be at ease. And finally, non-harming. And to non-harm re- requires compassion for all living beings. So we're cultivating those things. To see the world and all beings as non-dual. Self and other are one. The non-dual dharma, Daito Roshi used to say that a lot, non-dual dharma, that was one of his things that he said. So in light of that, I, I, I like to illustrate intellectual concepts 
with stories. Because stories, they seem to be a closed narrative, but they're actually very, very open. And they use our mind's ability to hold an object and project an experience. I found this story that I thought challenges us about our right intentions and other things. So I will just read this. The Tibetan uh, 12th century Tibetan master Geshe Ben was renowned for his goodness and clarity. Once, while begging for alms, a family of devout Buddhists invited him home to be fed. He was so hungry that he found it difficult to wait while his hosts were elsewhere preparing the meal. To his complete shock, he found himself stealing food from a jar when no one was looking. That's not who he was. Geshe Ben suddenly burst in loud cries of, Thief! Thief! I've caught you red-handed! His host rushed into the room to find him berating himself and threatening his hand with being cut off if it ever behaved like that again. So clearly, desires are inexhaustible. Even Geshe Ben, the Tibetan master of wisdom and clarity, goodness and clarity, knows that. So I was wondering who or what reached for the food and called thief. Was he saying, I don't mean to do that? Or something else going on here? Was his right and goodness and clarity evident or not? The severe threat of harming, that's Ill, uh, harming is the wrong intention. Is that what we're saying? Or was he dreaming a separate self and waking up to clarity in the process of this experience? And what about the hosts? I'm not going to answer those questions. (laughs) These are questions when we look at ourselves, when we do things that we wonder about, not to be so strictly self-contained, look at it more widely, maybe in light of the teachings um, in this book on contemplating reality, that's the title, by Andy Carr. He, he does talk about the three turnings of the wheel and that as a process. And he says that Buddha introduced the true nature of reality, these three turnings, in stages. We work with them all simultaneously, but we may not fully embody them completely at all at once. There are things that we begin with and continue with. And primarily um, because we want to counter, and he calls this intense egolessness phobia. Intense egolessness phobia. It's really, really hard to believe that we're not separate and distinct, as I said before. In light of that, I wonder about Geshe Ben. Did he think he was separate and distinct? And Andy Carr says, it's not enough to just think there is no self or everything is empty and not easy to recognize a dream while you are dreaming when we mistake what isn't a self to be a self. What we mistake what isn't a self to be a self 
and our projections to be real objects, we cannot be free from delusion and suffering. So it's like in a dream, we are compelled to ride the roller coaster of happiness and sorrow until we see that the dream is made out of dream stuff. And he he delineates, I thought this was helpful, this is why I'm bringing this up, the three turnings. So the first turning is, he says, the way things appear to ordinary deluded human beings. Now when he says ordinary deluded human beings, that's us. That's us. We're all like this. We grow up, we're cultivated to be conditioned to be this, that, this. The self, things, beings, and the world exists. Each thing exists. It exists with an exclamation mark. It exists. The three times, past, present, and future, exist. Suffering exists, and cessation of suffering exists. So that's encountering the uh, Four Noble Truths there. And on the second turning of the wheel at Vulture Peak, when the Arhats got up and left, he says, this is how things really are, not just how they appear. And this is the concept of emptiness. All phenomena are marked or shown in signs of impermanence, selflessness, and suffering. Removing obscurations from body and mind through sensation is nirvana peace. This is how cause and effect work at the level of apparent reality. And he goes on to comment, when we begin to wear out our attachments to delusion, and that's exactly what we're doing at session, ad nauseum, ad nauseum, I'm seeing the same old, same old, same old, when is it going to change, ad nauseum. Wearing out your attachment till it's threadbare, to delusion, and follow the teachings of the first turning, we can then hear the second and third turning of the wheel more clearly, the way things actually are. Genuine reality is essencelessness. It's easier to call it emptiness. That all phenomena are empty of true existence and like dreams. So when we hear the Heart Sutra, Do you bring that up in your practice of looking, in your zazen? All all dharmas are forms of emptiness, not born, not destroyed. Is that the delusions coming up ad nauseum? Or is that the truth coming through the delusion ad nauseum? Do you see yourself in the Heart Sutra? Are you form or are you empty? And why are they even two? Neither or both. Don't forget, this is why 5,000 people got up and left. So seeing this emptiness, is it like catching a thief red-handed? Are they two or one? Then he talks about the third turning, and that all dharmas are the play of radiant clarity, or our Buddha nature. But he didn't say that delusions aren't that. They are that. To ordinary deluded beings, the clarity is obscured with emotionality, thoughts, concepts of fixed views. 
So he uses an illustration that we know the sun is always shining. Don't you see it out there? Oh, wait, there's clouds. So the clouds are obscuring. They're temporary obscurations, right? But the sun is there. We all know that. Every morning we know that. And when the wind rises and blowing them out, then the sun is revealed again. And we come to trust Coming to trust that the sun is always radiantly there is also a way of sensing your true person, your true nature. And Dogen speaks of this sensing and being moved by it, moved by what is spoken and heard. This is unsurpassable enlightenment. You vow to refrain, and this is, The vowing is the right intention to refrain from unwholesome action and practice refraining from unwholesome action. So we sit in zazen and zashin and we turn our minds toward this, seeing, being, relaxing, being alert, sensing, relaxing all the senses, includes relaxing the mind, the body, So these experiences appear and disappear like the clouds. And we wonder if they're a dream or they're real. What was I thinking yesterday? Oh, my gosh. That was such a weird thing. I can't believe it. And we've had that experience. I mean, I know I have in session especially because you you become like, you know, there's not that much distraction, so you're, kind of can remember what you were thinking yesterday or being or the mood and suddenly it's something else. And that can all happen in one zazen period, for sure. This is like dream work. So these thoughts and the emotions that flow in the sky like a dream or a cloud. When we call thief, is something stolen or given? Do we learn to cut desire at its root? before the thought, before becoming? What if we forget the thought entirely? So when I read this story about Geshe Ben, I thought, well, that's me at night in the kitchen with cookies. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'll just have one cookie. Yeah, it's not going to have a big effect. No, maybe one more. Uh, Tomorrow I'll stop, you know, I'll just... And these are the rationalizations about little desires, big desires, manipulations. And they're so sort of, oh, they're like, they're not even, they're not like sand. They're more like Play-Doh, you know. They're all stuck together. And I shouldn't have had that cookie. Um, And it's really good to see those patterns. And especially when when you're sitting in session, because... If you can reflect on a more humorous venture like a cookie situation, of course, trying to cut your hand off is very serious. But um, you might be able to look at something a little more involved and reactive with other people. You know, what was I thinking? Why did I have that thought? Or what was the impression of that person that made me, made me the impression? Why did I take that sense of something about that person and take it and make this whole scenario that, you know, 
at the end of session, like it's turned into something else and maybe, but like a cloud, it goes. These are things to really look at, especially if they're not that uh, emotionally laden because then it can help us when we're looking at deeper emotional kinds of things that we're habitually stuck with. Andy Carr talked about our intense egolessness phobia, and that is resting on what if we just rested on our radiant clarity and we didn't even engage the cloud as something, that it's a thing that's solid, that's a known thing, that it's something that comes and goes, like the self. Why doesn't the self come and go in our mind? And it does, but do we see that? This can be very terrifying when we think that we're nothing or no thing. So get closer to these processes of breathing, sitting on your sit bones, your shoulders, what you're seeing in your vision when you're looking down. Get closer to those senses. They're just as much part of the whole package as the thought that you're create that you're creating and understand that reality is much much wider a much wider view i wanted to end with another little story and a poem just in reflection in a gentle reflection about who who you are who am i so this is from the Taoist master, um, Chang Tzu. It's called Dream of a Butterfly. And I altered it to suit, suit my time and place. In a dream, I'm a butterfly fluttering in the sun of flowers. I only know happiness flying here and there. I am unaware that I am a woman. Suddenly I wake. There I am, a woman again. Now, I do not know whether I'm a woman dreaming I am a butterfly or whether I'm now a butterfly dreaming I am a woman. Is there a difference between us before becoming? What is coming to the place before becoming? Before becoming a thought in mind, before a memory of becoming? Where is this place before a child's dream, I am space. What was I before this? And where was I? I just landed here. The long green day of spring, flitting in the cherry tree, sun beating on my crown. In the cool sand, my feet squish around, the drone of bees in the humid air, and the lonely feeling. It feels like forever. It feels like forever. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.